You're listening to 92Y Talks. What does it mean to cook like an American? How do U.S. chefs differentiate themselves amidst their international colleagues? Chefs Thomas Keller of Per Se and the French Laundry and Corey Lee of Benu sits down with food critic Mimi Sheraton to discuss how they use their plates and palates as a canvas for exploring our national identity. The conversation was recorded on April 28, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. It is a beautiful book and gives me a good reason to try to get to San Francisco. I have not had the pleasure, though I think I have enjoyed just about all of Thomas's restaurants, beginning with Raquel. A long time ago. And Checkers, as I remember. Yeah, I was good memory. Checkers. Yeah. Incognito, right. you didn't know. Oh. <laughs> Um, I think what everyone is looking for, or people who are interested in food and reading about it, is a convenient label to put on what is a relatively new form of cooking, which might be considered intellectual, inventive, is it contemporary, is it modern, is it fusion, is it molecular? How do you describe what you do your category of restaurant, and we can ask Corey first. Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't really have a, an easy answer for that. And um, in an attempt to answer it, I, I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's true, it's, it's hard to um, come up with labels because what something means to me is, is something differently for someone else. I mean, American cuisine, new American cuisine, what that means to you is different from what it means to chef. Um, so I think that there are restaurants that um, have to do with classical cooking of an area, um, like southern food or classical right. French food. Which you are not. Which we're not. Um, and then there are restaurants that you go to experience the, the cooking of a particular person or a particular restaurant. Um, and I think that's the camp that we're in. Thomas? I'm thinking now in terms of French laundry and per se, not Bouchon or... No, no, I understand. I, I, it's, it's a good question. I, I think maybe some of you have heard me chat about this before. I think that the, you, know, you think about the generations, right? Every generation um, has new art. Every generation has new music. Every generation has new fashion. And it's only recently when we started thinking about food in that same context, right? Uh, nouvelle cuisine, for example... Um, was a generation of chefs at that time who changed the way we thought about food uh, and the way we presented food, certainly the way we cooked food, um, and certainly the way we thought about chefs. Um, today, you know, each generation having a, a, a take on, uh, on the traditional food that they were taught has nouvelle cuisine, even though we don't call it nouvelle cuisine anymore. But, but with that said, we, we look about cuisine today and I think about in, in, in almost in, in, in two camps. We have, you mentioned, you know, intellectual food, right? I, I can go there. Um, personality cuisine, you know, the chef's personality coming through using techniques from around the world. You know, Corey does this, you know, sh extremely well. We do this at the French Laundry a little bit. Um, you know, that, that uh, Ferran is intellectual food. It's food that when you taste it, you have to think about it a little bit. It's not just, well, I think this is really good. You have to taste... You have to taste the food and go, the question is, is not, is it good? The question is, do I like it or not? Because you don't really have any reference points. Um, so that could be personality, intellectual food. More intellectual food than personality food. And then you have on the other side, which I think, you know, is important from, uh, for me, you know, and certainly in what we try to achieve, 
is emotional, an emotional connection to food, right? Where you taste, you know, a beautiful puree of potatoes and you go, oh my goodness, that's just, that's amazing. That's just a beautiful, you know, gorgeous flavor, texture, and every, you know, it is, I have had baked, I've had puree potatoes before, but this is now uh, my new benchmark. But there is a similarity in presentation in the minds of the public, I think, when they are going to new contemporary, partly the style of plating, partly that they will get little highly designed bits and pieces of things with dots of color. That is a kind of restaurant in the mind of the public. Aside from whether it is definitely Asian-based as Bennu is, you can't read the pages without seeing Asian ingredients. Yours is less ethnically focused, even if your background is a French perception. How would you classify that kind of restaurant as compared to a meat and potatoes restaurant where the food is just on a plate? Uh, I, I think of it myself, and I don't know if this is valid to you, in terms of what became known between World War I and World War II as in architecture and design as the Bauhaus style, which eventually came to be called the international style which means nothing was based on what happened in Vienna uh, because it was Viennese. Nothing that happened in French with France with Courbusier was French. Nothing that happened with Mies here was anything but the international style, which was a way of looking at architecture. Is there now a way of looking at food such as we're talking about that transcends borders and that all of you chefs around the world are in touch with each other, more or less, on starting points. Corey? Well, I think there's definitely um, uh, some homogeneity in, in, in how food looks in certain restaurants. Um, so I know what you're talking about, but um, you know uh, that's always been the case. I feel like there have been trends in, in the way food gets plated and how it's presented, um, whether it's you know, ring molds and very vertical you know, 20 years ago to things being more spread out and landscapey. Uh, maybe 10 years ago. That was only California that piled up food. <laughs> no, they no. didn't do any kind of cooking. They just grilled everything and piled it on top of each Actually, other no, without I, any I, exchange I, I, in flavor. I, I, I have to disagree with that. I think that was Alfred Portali. What? Alfred Portali. <laughs> <laughs> who was, who was no, Jonathan Waxman came here with a lot of stacked up grilled food and he is, <laughs> he is gone much farther now, I'm happy to say. <laughs> Yeah, but you do see um, people, whether they're being influenced or they're borrowing um, from each other, you do see that a lot. And because the, the world is a lot smaller now and chefs are interacting much more than before, um, it's, it's only natural that they'll start to influence each other. No. How do you start to create a dish? What gives you an inspiration for a new dish? Look at ingredients, something you ate in a foreign country or in another place, or what? I, I think that's influence. I think you're influenced by what you see, and I think people mistake influence for inspiration. I think inspiration only happens occasionally, and I think if you're lucky, um, you can really, if you're lucky and aware of the world around you, then, then, then you can truly be inspired by something. Um, I can't tell you what's going to inspire me tomorrow. Uh, it could be anything. I think that, again... The first, the first thing that we must pay attention to is, is what's, what's going on around us, that awareness, mm -hmm. wherever you are. You know, a leaf falling from a tree can inspire a poem, can inspire a song, you know, can inspire 
painting can inspire a dish. Um, it depends on how you interpret it. So um, I think that if you are truly aware and you become inspired, then you interpret it as something that's meaningful for you. And then, of course, then, then the last thing that follows is evolution. How does that dish evolve into something? Um, you know, walking down the, the aisle of, of a grocery store and seeing a purple box that said, you know, uh, pearl tapioca uh, inspired the oysters and pearls, you know, because I thought, well, where, does, where, where do pearls come from? You know, so it was really about that kind of inspiration um, or looking at an ice cream cone differently, you know, for the first time uh, and being inspired by that. Um, but it's hard. It, it really, we use that term so loosely today, you know, what inspires you. I think it's more what influences you is a better, uh, is a better mm -hmm. word to use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you? Well, there, there are moments of true inspiration. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and for me, I think um, it, it's some, in some ways tied to your goals. Um, I, I try to look for things that are, that are new, uh, new for me, exciting, and, and offering someone an experience that can only, they can only have at a restaurant. And so inspiration is tied to those goals as a chef. Um, so sometimes, you know, you'll be influenced by things, like Chef was saying, but you want to be inspired in a way that will help you create something that is a goal of yours. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think Nouvelle Cuisine broke the rules in a way that eventually led to what everybody's doing now, when they said all bets are off and began using things from far away? Well, you know, the term of You're cuisine, pretty well, young I mean, to have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that why you were looking at me? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I could look at myself. Corey, <laughs> really? Corey's, Corey's a historian as well, so he understands this. No, but, but Nouvelle Cuisine is, is such a Eurocentric way to view food. Um, and I, even though I studied it or read about it uh, immensely or worked in kitchens that were, that were uh, born of it, I've never had an emotional connection to Nouvelle Cuisine. I, I mean, I, I just have no connection to that. Um, so to always consider the food that I'm cooking through that lens, it just, it, it, it's, it's, there's no you? connection there. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's what, what Nouvelle Cuisine really did for us was give us, was, was kind of release the chefs, you know, gave us uh, an opportunity to get out of the kitchen, gave us recognition. By the French, gave well, you by, permission. Well, I mean, Paul <laughs> Bocuse, Chappelle, all those guys right. who finally, who finally, who finally got out of the kitchen and, and, and became, um, became well-known chefs. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that they did for us was, was give us plated food. Right? Up until that point, everything that was in a, uh, in, in a three-star restaurant uh, was plated by somebody in the dining room. Uh, and those chefs said, we want to we take back that. We want to be able to plate food in the way we see the food being plated. And so, you know, it's something I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, that happened in the, in the late 60s when food in three-star restaurants and two-star restaurants went from being plated by a dining room person to being plated by the chefs. And so that's something that we... we but the fact today. that the French broke the rules was probably most important. Well, it was their rules to break. I mean... I mean, everybody what, followed right. their I rules. Mean, at, so. at that time, what did you have? I mean, in West, Western cuisine, French food was the most renowned, the most refined. Yeah. They, they, they're the ones that made the rules. Uh, what does it mean to be an American chef as compared to a chef in any other country? Does it have a special meaning other than being a chef in America? Do you blend more influences? <laughs> Is it a melting pot? 
Um, yeah, I think it gives us a lot more opportunity because we're not tied to you know any any ethnic or cultural cuisine like the French are, um, mm-hmm. or even the Japanese or uh, the Spaniards or the Italians. I think we we can we can glean anything we want from around the world and can be considered American because we are that melting pot of cultures. Um, so being an American chef allows us to 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 use a lot of different techniques, a lot of different flavors, um, without. Uh, w- without being criticized for it too much. Mm-hmm. No, abso- absolutely. I mean, um, there's no unifying identity in, a, in American cuisine. Um, there's some regional cuisines like the Southern cuisine or things in New England. Um, but it, it, it ultimately gives us liberty as chefs. Mm-hmm. And are you in touch with chefs in other parts of the world on methods and ideas? Do you... Uh, talk to Red Zeppi or talk to did you Audrey I'm sure you all talk to but uh, Otto Lenghi or who's very influential in England right now though I don't know if the presentation mm-hmm. is um, I talk to chefs from around the world all the time um, but rarely do we sit around and, and you know how, how do you make that sauce or what did you put in you know this emulsion it's, it's rarely about technique um, it's about how we operate our restaurants, um, what keeps us going, um, what we find inspiration in, things of that nature. Uh, on the subject of critics, are you at all apprehensive about critics taking into account what has now become a kind of messianic, moralistic tone about ethics related to sustainability, Locavore, no gen- GMO foods, organic. And have you ever seen a critic uh, berate a restaurant for any of those uh, lapses? Yeah. Why do you call them lapses? <laughs> well, you serve Maine lobsters, so there's a lapse. What, what, and how, I'm with how, you. How, tell me, explain how that's a lapse. It's not local. What's local? Local is as close as you can get to home, and I, let me say, well, I'm I mean, not then, a then, local. Then for me, boy. then for me, the Maine lobster is as close as I can get to home for Maine lobster. Well, so I'm buying local food. <laughs> I mean, there's no definition for local. I'm sorry. I mean, is it is it is it a well, horse I'm, is it a horse I'm, carriage ride? Is it a car drive? Is it how far you can walk in eight hours? I have no idea what local. I'm is. trying to find out in our markets. Is it better if I buy peaches from New Jersey than Pennsylvania? Well, here's a question yeah, for you. Because Pennsylvania's farther away. Than well, the, I mean, so you, you so so let's say let's define local as 25 miles, even though that's an absurd right. radius. And let's say within that 25 mile, there's a farmer who grows carrots. He doesn't really care how he grows carrots. He grows the worst carrots in the world, right? There's a guy who actually now 26 miles away who really cares about the carrots, cares about the soil, really spends a lot of time with his carrots and grows the best carrots in the world. I can't buy that guy's carrots because he's outside of the that 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 that. I'm not local. a local. No, I, know. I, I'm I just, buy I'm just, peaches. I'm just asking the question. I buy mail order Georgia freestyle. I think the I think <laughs> and white grapefruit from the Indian River. <laughs> yeah, better peaches in California, but we won't go there. <laughs> not as good as Georgia freestyle. <laughs> I know it's it's you know, that subject. I, it gets that gets my my blood boiling when we start talking about and local and sustainability and and you know endangered species. You don't serve sharks fins either. No, one I, I you know I don't. I, <laughs> Tell us uh, that's, now. Ask Corey. I mean, it's, 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 
Well, I think endangered species is, is, a, is a completely different subject. Yeah. yeah. I don't think any of us are serving endangered species. But have you ever seen a critic criticized for that? I have yet to see a critic who says they're serving veal and it's raised cruelly or... Well, I mean, a critic that's that's a well-known critic because everybody's a critic today. I mean, you no, can go, I mean, on, professional. You, you go on social media and everybody's No, no, I, you know that's not yeah. what I mean. Okay. I mean the kind that can hurt. Because there are there are people who who really complain about you know who have these ideas about local who have these ideas about sustainability who have these ideas about carbon footprint and yeah they'll they'll complain about there are guests in the restaurant who will come in and say you know why do you buy lobsters from Maine as you point out because they're the best right. so I, I you know it takes a while to explain why but you know I think when they leave they at least understand my point of view whether they agree with it or not I am not sure you said when. You and I were speaking before that things have changed so much in the last five to ten years that you would answer a lot of these questions, would have answered them very differently ten years ago. Can you tell us how? Well, I think um, uh, there's just a much more captive audience now. A uh, much more captive audience? A much more captive audience. Meaning More what? people are interested in, in food and restaurants than ever before. But that's not captive. Well, they're, ca they're, they're captive as well. There's a greater audience, and there's also a captive audience. Um, I also think that chefs have, have a greater and larger platform to voice their ideas, um, what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve in, in restaurants. And that's, that's changed the dynamic of, of, of restaurants and the relationship between the consumer and restaurants. What has changed since you opened Raquel on Varick and... <laughs> Um, I, I mean, there's so much that's changed the, since then. It's kind of hard to go down the history of that. But that was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I think certainly American chefs have become have become in their own right um, credible in what we do. You know, that was the beginning. I, 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 I am fortunate or unfortunate, depending how you look at it, uh, to be of the generation of first American chefs that have gained um, recognition. You know, Alfred Portali. Jonathan Waxman, as you pointed out, Larry Forgione. I mean, these these are all chefs that, that come from my generation. So we were we were in that forefront where we were learning uh, as we go because there was nobody who really showed us a path uh, to success. Um, and it, it's 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 been a extraordinary um, um, for me an extraordinary personal experience because I've kind of watched what's happened with our profession in the past 35 years, which is grow up. Um, and it's, I'm really, really proud of what, what we have achieved in, in, this, in these 35 or 40 years. Um, and you think about American cuisine and the recognition of American cuisine, you're talking about maybe the early 70s, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, Andre Sultner said to me once that one of the greatest things Paul Bocuse accomplished is taking chefs out of the servant class and making them stars. Uh, did that help pave the way for the acceptance of American chefs? Because in the beginning, I can remember a number of lawyers who gave up law to become chefs. I think, I think Barry one, Wine was who, who was the other one? Oh, there was one. <coughs> David Barry Wine, certainly. Who had, yeah. who? Barry Wine, certainly, yeah. Barry Wine, but also there was another one David somebody who had a place called Bourguignon or yeah. something. I know three lawyers who did their practice to, to found CP, California Pizza Kitchen, right? <laughs> <laughs> but do you think Bocuse did that? Took the of course. Yeah, I, think, I, don't, I don't think there's any argument about, about his, um, 
his influence on 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 cuisine and cooking. On per, but his, perception his influence of on restaurants, no doubt. I mean, before before Paul Bocuse, you try to think of, of great chefs. I mean, you have to go all the way back to Escoffier almost. I mean, you had Ferdinand Point. I'm sorry, you had Ferdinand Point in there in, in between. Um, you know, but the disciples of Ferdinand Point were all the chefs that we speak about today who established Nouvelle Cuisine. You know, Bocuse, Chappelle, um, that whole band of brothers out of out of France. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you ask my mother, I mean, five years ago, I'm still in domestic help, you know. Right. But <laughs> so uh, my, no, in Korea, it's domestic but, help, right? Right. I mean, my. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking about that, but my point is, I think, again, you know, it's... it's you're not an executive. You're well, it depends what perspective you have, and, and we're talking a lot about the French perspective, but we're Americans, and I really don't share that perspective at all. Um, and whether it's Pablo Cous, who's helped, you know, raise the level of French chefs, I think we as American chefs have a very different history. Um, and, and, you know, it's not this, this uh, linear path for American chefs as, as it might be in France. Mm -hmm. Not now. Yeah. And what do you think of tasting menus, which have been excoriated by? Tell us why you like them, and why we should like them. Corey, you want to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> you still do a tasting menu, don't you? We only do yeah. tasting menus. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think uh, I think it was the French Laundry that was the Excuse first. Excuse me, is it another name for table d'hote? Not at all. No. No, not at all. So, okay, then. Well, I, I think the French Laundry was the first restaurant that I heard of in America doing these very elaborate, long tasting menus. And one of the first to only offer a tasting menu, right? So, and and I, can't, I grew up in that system. So for me, that's become synonymous with an opportunity to connect with a diner um, and offer the best possible experience that evening for the diner. The diner doesn't know what the best product um, that came in that particular day was, but we do, and we have the opportunity to offer that to the diner. And to that's show why. what you can do and no, what not you just, think, it not would just take to, a tasting menu? Well, that's why they come to our restaurants, right? Because they want to experience what we think. Um, okay. And we can offer that in the best way possible through a tasting menu. Uh, by taking the choice out, we eliminate the risk of someone choosing unwisely. How could you choose unwisely well, in a great I, restaurant? I, I think it's possible in terms of sequence, in terms of balance. I think it's, I think it's very possible. I mean, I've been to a la carte restaurants where you order poorly because it's, it's, you didn't ex it's not what you expected in terms of size, portion, uh, combination, how, how it um, marries with, with your beverage choices. I mean, there are, there are endless ways that you can make bad decisions when you're dining. You have no all. It's true. It is so, no so true. The first, the first decision you have to make when dining is, is choosing the people that you're dining with. <laughs> That's the first important decision. Who should not go to your restaurants? Many years ago when I worked for about five years for the famous Joe Baum when he was creating the Four Seasons and all kinds of restaurants with themes, he used to say, people don't come to our restaurants because they're hungry. Do people go to your restaurants because they're hungry? And who would you rather see not come to your restaurant other than a deadbeat? A food critic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's make news. <laughs> I couldn't be happier. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, well, I think everyone should. I mean, the kind yeah, of. Yeah, I, you know, I think. I, you know, yeah. Yes, I, but I, you I, wrote in your. I have a democratic point of view. It's like you know. But you see someone who's really 
sort of uncomfortable and <clears throat> unhappy, not knowing what to have expected. And I, I think that's where the tasting, you know, we talk about the tasting menu, I think there's a lot of different, th th this, is, this is a long conversation, so tr trying to, you know, encapsulate it in these little um, responses is, is, is very, very difficult. But, you know, think about the tasting menu, you know, a big part of the tasting menu for me was the law of diminishing return, which means the more you have one dish, the less you like it. Of course, we, we as chefs want you to experience the food and, 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 and to the point where you go, wow, I wish I had one more bite. I think that's, you know, is, is true success with any dish. It's kind of, I wish I had one more bite of that because you're still wanting for something. Um, tasting menus, as, as Corey says, gives us an opportunity to really highlight what's available that day. You know, really, really the, um, the, the, the best ingredients uh, of that moment uh, and put it together in a composition that we feel adds, adds um, a sense of quality and flavor to it that's gonna give you an experience, again, that you're gonna be that you're going to remember because it's all about those memories. Success is about memories. Um, you know, having people in our restaurants that don't like our restaurants, I think, or don't we don't want to have come into our restaurant? It's a, it's an odd question. I think that the, the tasting menu for me, as it developed, because we used to have also a smaller tasting menu where there were choices in each category as we started the, the restaurant. But what happened was people would, would would be full of anxiety. You know about that. Like, what do I choose? I'm here once. It's a, it's this very very well known restaurant. Um, I don't want to make a mistake. You know, what should I choose? And so, trying to trying to relieve the guest of that kind of anxiety on what to choose, whether it's about the food or whether it's about the wine. Um, you know, if we can relieve all that anxiety and all those questions that they have, and just give them a, a great experience, then we're, we're we're more likely to be successful than letting them choose something and they go, well, that was really what I wanted. Or that's not what I've heard about. I've heard about these other things. So giving them uh, the experience that we want to give them, and this is you know, really echoing what Corey said. Are there no choices within the tasting menu? <clears throat> there are always choices. Uh, you, know, you talked about great restaurants. I mean, there's always choices at great restaurants, right? Within a tasting menu. I, you know, we have a list of, of, of dishes that aren't, that aren't on the tasting menu that are available. You know, if you don't like quail, we, we may have pigeon, we may have chicken, we may have How duck. do they know that? The, the, oh, they the conversation say? with the captain. So this is where this is where you know our guests and our our, our our team really has to set people at ease. And I think you know you think about a restaurant, and I realize, and I probably Corey feels the same way. Is, is food is like maybe third, fourth, or fifth in importance, right? It's 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 that it's the first. What's really important is, the, as I said, the people that you come with, and making sure that you're with a group that you you like. You know, your your friends, your family, your loved ones. I mean, that that is. Really, I think the, the, a basic formula for, for success in any restaurant is, is, is having you come and be happy with, with who you are with. And then, of course, the service staff and how they greet you and how they interact with you. So, yes, if, if, if you're at ease and you, you say this to, the, to the captain, you know, I really don't like quail, captain say, you know, that's no problem. We've got these things. Uh, you know, I, can, I have the, you know, can I have more vegetables? No problem. Yeah, we have that. So I, I, think, I think what we do is, as, as great restaurants and great chefs is try to give people what they want within reason. We write our menus based on what we feel, but we always, and Corey's the same way, we always have options. Do you always have options? We, we have uh, several menus happening simultaneously each day. Uh -huh. And because of that, um, we have options. No. Um, and we have, we're, you know, we're, we're very accommodating when it comes to dietary restrictions, and, and a lot of our work goes into um, those dishes that are actually off the menu, so to speak. Um, and that's, that's part of being a good restaurant. But you said in your book <clears throat> about, I believe it's pronounced padan, or 100-year-old eggs, mm -hmm. 
that you start off the meal with a quail egg, not a duck egg, with a green yolk. And some people cannot eat the green yolk. And <laughs> you feel they came to the wrong restaurant. Well, uh, or they didn't like Dr. Zeus, I'm not sure. Yeah. Or they thought they were going to be poisoned. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that um, we try to, we, we, work, we work tirelessly with a, with a huge team, and, and we try to offer something that's unique to our restaurant, where you can come and have dishes or an experience that you can only have at our restaurant in San Francisco. And some of that is, is very cerebral or intellectual, um, and, and, and that's in an effort to create some kind of emotional connection with the person. But if someone comes in, they need to have someone of an open mind. Um, and they have to be interested in trying new things. And if, if they're not interested, that connection is, is very hard to make. Has there ever been anyone who didn't eat a green yolk, who ate the rest of the meal and was very happy? There have been a, a few, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did I get the uh, green yolk? You've had it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and not for St. Patrick's Day, and not green eggs and ham. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a it's, perfect introduction no, but the, to green eggs and ham. Yeah, that's, yeah. you got to love Dr. Zeus, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah but the thing about that preparation and why um, I think it's a good indication of whether they'll enjoy the meal or not is because if you were to eat that blind, it'd be something you'd recognize. It's very savory. It has a cheesy quality. You have it with a rich soup made from cabbage and onions and puree with a little bit of dairy. Um, so it's a very familiar texture and flavor. But when you see it, you're, you're psychologically, you have a hard time accepting it. So that really puts a diner to the test. You know, is it, it, are you open-minded? Puts a diner to the test. Absolutely. I mean, are you open-minded open about um, what, you, what you're going to have? Mm -hmm. um, or are you rejecting it because it's, it's different and it's foreign? But you don't throw them out if they didn't eat the green egg. No, I've never done that. <laughs> uh, something else you said that, that would perhaps relate to both of you, that Bennu is a restaurant of San Francisco and that it would not be the same any place else. You mean to say if you moved Bennu to New York, it would have no meaning with the same menu? I don't know if it'd have no meaning, but um, you know, we're a young restaurant. We've been, we've been open for five years, and it's evolved, I think, enormously in that short period of time. And, and part of that evolution has been informed by where we are and, and the city that we're in. And San Francisco has been a huge influence on, on how the cuisine has developed. So if we were to transplant that to New York, you know, would it be the same restaurant? I don't know. But if we had opened from the beginning in New York, I don't think we'd be the same restaurant we are today. Do you find, uh, Thomas, the same um, reactions or, or perception of your food between French Laundry and Per Se, which has many of the same dishes? I don't know if the menus are identical. I've never studied that closely. Mm -hmm but a number of the signature dishes are there. Does it have sure. different meaning in New York than in the French Laundry? Well, you know, I don't think it's about location. I think it's about the, the guests. And I think when we, we think about great restaurants, I think we're all sharing around the world. We're all sharing the, the, same, the same guest. You know, it may not be the exact same guest, but the same mentality, the same interests, um, uh, the same love for great, for great food, great wine, and, and, and great service. Um, so when we opened in New York, people would ask me, what are you going to change? Why? Well, they're New Yorkers. Well, but this is, this, is, this is not about New Yorkers. This is about a restaurant and a restaurant philosophy and a restaurant culture um, that revolves around, uh, around my, my team, myself and my team's uh, points of view, what we feel is um, 
uh, maybe the best composition, the best food, the best service, the best environment, all those different things that are interactive with the guests. So it's not a New York restaurant as much as French Laundry is not a California restaurant. Oh, so it's not, a, let's say, venue-connected as Corey thinks Bennu is in San Francisco. I, I don't. I don't believe so. I think you know. I, it's fine. I've, you know, just to tell a little story about Corey because I was with him for a long time and you know, and, and help, in listening and, and and trying to advise him or give him feedback on his restaurant. Um, it's something that we do, and we've talked. We talked about it for I don't know, three or four years, maybe two and a half, three or something mm-hmm. uh, about you opening a restaurant. And and you know, you know, you can walk into any anybody's kitchen, Corey's included, and say, you know, who who wants to open their own restaurant and I guarantee you 90% of those young chefs' hands are going to go up. So, you know, you know that from the beginning. And I think if you can help help those who have talent, commitment, dedication, focus to achieve that, I think that's a really great thing. And certainly Corey was one of those individuals. But he was always a New Yorker. I mean, he came to French Laundry for the sole purpose of coming back to New York to open per se. That's the only reason he, he came out there. He called me one day and he said, this is what I want to do. Um, when um, When I was looking for the next chef for the French Laundry. Um, Corey was the executive sous chef at Per Se, and I went to Jonathan Benno first because, you know, with, with respect to the chef there, I wanted to see if it was okay if I offered Corey the chef's position at the French Laundry. And Jonathan said, no, you, you can, yeah, you can offer to him, chef, but he's not going to go. He's a New Yorker. Um, well, you know, it's the chef position at the French Laundry, so he, he jumped at the chance. <laughs> uh, he came back to the French Laundry, and I'm trying to make this as short as possible. And, and as, as we worked together and he started to develop his idea for his own restaurant, he was looking, you know, in New York as his first choice mm-hmm. um, uh, to come back to. And I remember the restaurant downtown on Houston Street. Was it Houston or Green Street? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Homeron. Homeron, yeah. We, wow. Well, both, both of us been there many times, and he was looking at that space. And we were on the golf course one day, and, and I think it was on the golf course, wasn't it, in San Francisco? And you said to me, Chef, I think I'm going to stay in San Francisco. And I asked him why. He said, because, you know, the vegetables are so much better here than in New York. <laughs> is, that, is that about the story? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's m- mostly accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for a chef, I think, you know, it's really about, this, it was about the ingredients and, 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 and being able to have access to those ingredients. But if, if I can just go back to Mimi's uh, uh, original question, I think that having worked there at the French Laundry for many years, um, I, I, I somewhat disagree in that. I think the French Laundry has been influenced so much by the Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about the purveyors that just came in the back door. Mm-hmm. All those people made that restaurant what it is or were, were um, part of making that restaurant what it is. And th- that happened in the Napa Valley. And if, if, if Chef opened French Laundry in... I don't know, Santa Cruz, Georgia, wherever. Or New York. Or New York. It would have evolved into a different restaurant. Um, you think so? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that, you know, you are a product of, this, of your environment. I mean, we have, but we're also, I think we're a product of, the French Laundry is a product of Napa Valley's success as well. You know, we're, we're, we're in a community in Napa Valley where two things happen. Um, when people come, our, our visitors come to eat and drink. You know, that's, that's why they come to Napa. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they may take a bike ride or go on a balloon ride, but primarily they're coming there to experience, you know, the, the, the wine and the food, or the food and the wine. Uh, other communities, San Francisco included, New York, and they're coming to, to experience other things, many, many things. There's many different opportunities to do different things. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's true about Napa Valley, and so we have an enormous agricultural environment around us, uh, so which offers us great opportunities to have some amazing, some amazing products. 
Um, the other thing is that people come there, people who, who come to Napa Valley to work are, are truly in, in the hospitality profession. You know, whether they're in the wine, wine world or in the, whether they're in the hotel world or whether in the restaurant world, they're all about hospitality. So I think our, our staff in, in, in Napa Valley is a little bit different than in other places. Well, certainly the feeling is different. Having eaten in both coasts, uh, I'm not sure if I were blindfolded, I could tell the difference in the food but I can tell the difference in my own feeling in being in the Napa Valley and being in Columbus Circle. So I think no. you come to it no. with a slightly different, more relaxed, mm. I mean, Napa Valley, scent of eucalyptus, wineries. Uh, so people are on, people are on vacation. Yeah, people are on vacation, team. yeah. I mean, it's a whole different thing. People who go to Napa Valley are typically there, you know, as visitors on vacation. People are, you know, in, in New York, we, although we do have a lot of visitors, we do have a lot of professionals that work in New York. Is there a big difference in the customer behavior? That I'd like to read about sometime. Um, New York is more impatient to get through a tasting menu? I think once you make, I, I think people know per se, you know, in the same way they know French Andre Benoun, I think they're, they're willing to make the commitment. Um, so I think they're fine with it. You think they make the commitment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's like going to a play. You know, it's, it's, it's an evening out. I mean, it's, that's what you're doing. You're not going to go to have dinner per se and then catch a Broadway show. That's not going to happen. <laughs> it's either one or the other. You might get a midnight performance of some weird movie yeah. down at IFC, but that would be... Um, we have some questions from the audience. I have a lot for, of questions. For either, <laughs> either one. Uh, what's your thought on cooking urban food, not something with collard greens, uh, water spinach on mac and cheese, but something truly urban? Most urban foods are highly seasoned. What are your thoughts? Corey, you want to feel that one? <laughs> urban seasoning. Ur urban seasoning. Um, dust. I have no idea what that means, but... A lot of dust. No, uh... I, I think I, I don't think there's a difference in, 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 in how we approach cooking um, because it's in an urban urban environment. I think that might uh, affect our program or the environment that the food is served in, but not the actual seasoning or the actual cooking. I mean, you have you have two restaurants in, in two very yeah. Again, I think you know we approach them the same. I mean, our yeah. philosophy you know is, is is the same in both of our restaurants. Uh, if you could cook one endangered species, <laughs> which one would you cook? You started. You started that. So you, that's that's a question for well, you. I think what would you, we need a restaurant you cook as well, called so. endangered species, and it would serve only endangered species. What was that movie? I forget. Yeah. What was it? The grad, um, Probably yellowfin tuna. <laughs> I would say right off the bat. Okay. Any endangered the sharks fins? Anything you love no. that you can't serve? No. no. <laughs> this is again for both of you. A great presentation of American food. And for each of you, at what point in your careers did you realize that maybe if you kept doing what you're doing, you had the chance to be great? I mean, was there a point where you say, I now have to take off in a different <clears throat> direction to realize what I want to realize, which I think is another way of Well, phrasing. define great. I mean, is great being recognized or is great being satisfied with what Rich. you're doing? 
I don't. I, I'm stopped. I, I, you know, I, Stephen Ells is rich because he started Chipotle. I'm not sure. You know, <laughs> restaurant tours at our level are rich. So. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's if it's wealth, you know, I'm still waiting for that moment. Right. But uh, <laughs> if, if it's if it's a moment when um, I think I found some some profession that would um, satisfy me mm -hmm. uh, physically and, and and artistically and creatively, uh, it happened kind of right away. And then um, I think soon I realized um, soon after with some training, I realized this is something that I'm capable of doing well. Uh, did you always have a passion for flavor and eating, both of you? Were you both always interested in food? No. You were. You said yeah, you were. Yeah, well, I, I, I was interested in food, uh, and I think I recognized food as a very important thing um, because I was in a family that had, had, had come here from Korea. And if, if you were in a family that, that immigrated somewhere, trying to keep the same eating culture of your native country is a very big thing. Hold on to something. Yeah, yeah, so I think I recognize the importance of food and what it signified, yeah. but professionally, that happened later. Why didn't you? Did you grow up on army bases? Um, for a while, but I grew up, I, I grew up as the youngest of five brothers who, um, as my, my as a single parent, my mother raised us, and so it was my brother's response, my oldest brother's responsibility to cook for us, because she worked at night. Um, she ran restaurants, and so what we ate was whatever they would cook, which was, uh, as you can imagine, you know, teenage boys um, cooking for their younger brothers. There wasn't a whole lot of food in the first place um, because they, whatever they cooked, they would eat most of. Um, <laughs> Swanson's TV dinners were a, big, were, were a big thing for me because it was my own dinner. If you're in New York City for one night, where would you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Let's make a dinner. What one restaurant would you want to go to if you were here for only one night? Oh, per se, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You'd um, never get a reservation. <laughs> he, he would just walk in and they all bow down. <laughs> Corey's here. Well, I, I know if I could choose, it would definitely be in my sister's home. Um, so it's, it's just so rare that um, I think chefs get a home-cooked meal. Well, from my experience anyway. Yeah, I need a chef. So if anybody want to invite us to dinner, <laughs> it's a good opportunity. How do you rate the importance uh, for a five-star experience? I don't know who gives five stars, but maybe somebody. Food, service, ambiance. Uh, proportions related to the rating of the a ratings. restaurant. Well, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll all, we all recognize that um, you'll go back to a restaurant that has good food, but great service before you go back to a restaurant that has great food and only good service. I think service really. You'll go back for great food and. No, you'll go back for, for, for good food and great service before you go back for great food. My and bad it? service. Yeah, bad service. Well, I don't want to say bad service, but you know, mediocre service, yeah. Or bad service. I think, I, I think the service really, I think service really makes, no service really makes an experience for a guest. Um, that's too complicated. <laughs> Which style of Korean barbecue do you prefer when eating out? Bulgogi or kalbi? Well, uh... Or you don't eat Korean food no, no, when I, you go out? I, I, I eat a lot of Korean food, and, um, it, it's, it, you know, I could give you the short answer or the long answer, but I'll, I'll go the short route. This um, comes from a chef. Yeah, so I, I eat kalbi, which is 
basically the short rib. Um, but that's just one of many different kinds of barbecue. And bulgogi is actually probably my least favorite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite Korean restaurant in New York? Oh, that's, 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 really, that's really tough. I have some friends out there, so. <laughs> Give us a couple. No, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot. Um, there's Hangoi. Um, yesterday, I ate, I ate a, um, a new restaurant that opened on um, 32nd uh, Street, uh, Pekjong. Um, so that opened about, I think, six months ago. It was my first time there. Uh, but they have an outpost in L.A. and, and in Korea. Um, and that was, that was really good. What's the name? Uh, Pekjong. 32nd and what? Uh, it's 32nd and 5th. Okay. Yeah. You want to write that down, maybe? Yeah, I don't have to write it down. You got it. <laughs> um, no, I don't like that. Oh, this is a good one, because I think I know the answer. What do you think the next big food trend in the U.S. is going to be? I would make it the next big influence. I don't like trends. You I, don't like what? No, I don't like trends. I mean, no. Trends are defined as something that has a beginning and an ending, and I don't want to be part of a trend that has a Well, it may go into future. I think we want to have, I think we want to have movements. You know, movements are much more. All right, movement. Yeah. In, let's say influence. <laughs> What's the, what's the next big movement in food? Yeah. Be next, let's say the next big influence on our cuisine. In America. In, yes. Yeah. It's hard to say. I think that you know, we, we want to continue to work with our, our, our farmers, our foragers, our fishermen, our gardeners, and support them. Um, but that's not a style. No, but, it's, but, no, but we think about, OK, so chefs became a, a movement in, our, in, our, in, in the world, right? Chefs started gaining recognition. Sommeliers started gaining recognition. And I think that those, those people who actually bring us our food, who raise our food, who grow our food, who forage for our food, who catch our food, are every bit as important, and sometimes more so than, than, than anybody else in the process. So I'd like to see a little more respect, a little more recognition, a, a little more of our support for, for what they're doing, and not always looking for the, the best at the cheapest, um, cheapest. Well, I'll tell you the next influence is going to be West African. You heard it here. Because the ingredients, the style of the food that I've been having at West African restaurants in Harlem has such resonance that I think it's going to be very much in the mix the way Middle East was a few years back and still continuing. There's a certain familiarity with the look of Louisiana cooking, which makes it not too strange to people, which is not too hard to understand, since most of the slaves who did the cooking in Louisiana came from West Africa. So uh, I think we're going to hear a lot about their spices and their ingredients. Do you think we'll ever get tired of looking for the next new thing? No, I hope not. That would be very boring. <laughs> Nobody would have eaten Nouvelle Cuisine. Yeah. I mean, what's new? What's ahead? Isn't that America? I think that's, I think that's an attitude that we all have, but sometimes we forget about what, what we have today for Quest for something. Well, I think it should never so be at the expense of the old and the right. classic. We have to, but, but that, in many cases, happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part that I that I. That's uh, because that's, you that get all the with. press. Sorry? That's because new restaurants get the press, and they don't go back and review the old. Well, I'm not talking about restaurants. I'm just talking about you know, what, what we do you know, in anything, right? Not just, not just, not just chefs, but in, in every part of our life. What, um, 
explain the decision to include gratuity in the price of your menu. What are the positives and the negatives? I think that's a question for, for chefs. You include gratuity? Well, yeah. I, well, I mean, I think New York and California are very two different places, and that's why I say it's a question for chef. Yeah. Uh, we do that in California because there are certain things unique and specific to California. Um, but I think chefs doing it for different. Uh, you know, we did it just solely because it allows, well, many different reasons, but it allows us to um, uh, take back the uh, ownership of our employees. Um, somebody who is working for gratuity um, is actually a, a, a bit of a subcontractor in that environment as they're working for you, uh, the guests. And if they feel that you're going to give them a, a big tip or the opportunity for a big tip and spend a little more time focusing on you than the person next to you. Um, if you're a friend of theirs, they're certainly going to spend more time with you. Um, it also affords us to really do, um, to have uh, a balance between our, our, our different departments, whether it's the kitchen, whether it's the wine, whether it's the dining room, or whether it's even the administrative department. Uh, because that revenue is it's actually, uh, it's actually not gratuity, so just to clarify that, it's, it's a service charge. Um, uh, it's, I'm sorry, it's service compri, so it's service is included in the price. Which, allow, which means that's revenue for the restaurant, which means obviously we pay taxes on it as well, but it affords us the opportunity to spread it apart, uh, spread it around where we want to. It gives us the opportunity to offer you know, better benefits for the dining room staff. It gives us opportunities to offer better vacation time for the dining room staff. So it really, it really balances out everybody to have them on the same, uh, the same playing field, if you will. Are you included? Uh, we're included at, um, at Benu, mm -hmm. and we just started that um, this year, actually. Mm -hmm. Do they leave extra tips? Some people do, and that's when it's gratuity, uh, which mm -hmm. is, again, different from service charge or service compris. This is a question for Thomas Keller. When you are home, what is a typical dinner at your house, and who cooks it? Um, I don't cook at home. So, <laughs> um, if, if, if we do, it's just something on the grill um, in the summertime, a steak with some vegetables, salad, very simple. Uh, I like this one. What is the last fast food restaurant you ate in? <laughs> uh, you brought coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, so we know. No, about I didn't bring. You. No, no, no. I did not bring that. Somebody brought it for that? me. <laughs> the last fast food restaurant I've eaten at would probably be In and Out Burger. I think most people know I'm a fan of In and Out Burger. So. Corey? Oh, he, he, he took my answer. Because it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good. It's in yeah. and out. Well, I think Chipotle is the one to watch in the next presidential election <laughs> because both Hillary and Jeff admit to eating at Chipotle. So okay. I think... Well, there you go. Stephen L's again, right? There's going to be an element of uh -huh. responsibility and intellect, of course. Mm. Uh, I think more intellectuals eat in Chipotle than... None. Okay. So I'm, I'm now watching who eats where and what um, fast food restaurant. So I think that about does it. Thank you. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank all you all for you. coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92iondemand.org.